He is risen. You at home respond by saying, he is risen indeed. Let's practice once. He is risen, you say. Throughout the message, I would encourage you whenever I say, he is risen, to respond by saying, he is risen indeed. Welcome to Grace Point's Easter celebration online. I'm so glad you've joined us for this message. I pray that it blesses your heart and ministers to your soul. This message is going to address a why question that's associated with Easter. Why of all the last words that Jesus could utter as his life was expiring on the cross, why would he say it is finished? How do you do at finishing? Would you be characterized as a finisher? You go well to the very end of a project? Or would you sometimes have to admit, I procrastinate, I don't finish real well? I've seen a lot of people come to the end of their careers, to a retirement moment, maybe to the switching of a job kind of situation, uh, or perhaps they're being laid off, where for two or three weeks they have to kind of push through this thing and work to the end as unto the Lord. And I've seen a lot of people really struggle with doing that well. It's a difficult thing to do. And if you do do that well, God bless you. You're probably one of the rare people that finishes well. Our Lord and Savior Jesus finished well. Today we're going to look at some scripture from John chapter 19 verses 28 through 30 that talk about Jesus finishing well using this phrase, it is finished. And this is going to introduce us then to the message that we're going to pursue this morning. Why of all the things that Jesus could have said, did he say at the end of his life, it is finished. Hear the scripture and also get your vinegar ready and your spoons ready. We're going to have an experience moment here in the middle of this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So right now, if you have kids there especially, I would encourage you to grab some vinegar. I have some apple cider here, vinegar, and pour a little bit into a spoon and each of you to taste it. So just pour a little bit in. Not a lot. This stuff's pretty potent. And just taste a little bit of a taste. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. Woo! I wasn't expecting it to be that bad. Um, I want you to experience a little bit of the harshness of the cross and the suffering that Christ is going through. And right now, I'm telling you what, my eyes are watering pretty bad. I just wasn't expecting this kind of reaction. So you may want to monitor how much your kids drink at home. Let's finish the scripture. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Easter question that we're going to address in this message is this. Why is it is finished the last thing that Jesus said before his death? Last words, especially by Jesus Christ in the Bible, are words that we should give great attention to. And this attention is only magnified by the fact that in just a few days, Christ would rise from the dead, validating everything that he had said. And I don't think you can begin to understand the why it is finished kind of question unless you begin to really go back and say, what is the problem? What is Jesus finishing? And until we really know that, we don't know how to answer why it is finished is the last thing that Jesus said before he died. So here's the problem that faced humanity. It was sin. 
But more than sin, it was the consequences of sin. So the problem was that humanity had been facing um, since the days of the Garden of Eden was that sin brought with it all kinds of consequences. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying the Lord and giving into the temptation of the serpent to eat that which was forbidden. Genesis covers so much. It's just this huge foundational book for you to read to understand humanity and the problem of humanity. So Genesis 1 and 2 talks about creation and that God created this world and it was perfect. And then he created Adam and Eve and they were perfect. They were in perfect harmony with one another. They were in perfect relationship with God and they were in perfect relationship with nature. We can't even begin to fathom what that must have been like because we live in such a sin-ridden environment and, and culture it's hard for us to conceptualize what that would have been like. Um, and then along comes sin. The serpent comes with a temptation, uh, tempting Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit, telling them, when you do so, your eyes will be open and you'll know good from evil and you'll be just like God. And they gave in to that temptation and they sinned. And mankind ever since, humankind ever since, has been giving into that temptation and thinking that we're like God, that we can control our own lives, that we're in charge. And then along comes something like COVID-19, this tiny little virus, and it puts the whole world on its knees almost. And all of a sudden, we don't think we know everything, and we don't think we're in control of everything. And Adam and Eve succumbed to that sin of pride of being like God, and that continues to be a, a, a problem with humankind ever since. Let's talk about the consequences of this original sin. I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Listen to this scripture. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I'll make your pain to childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So humanity now faced all kinds of consequences because of sin. And the first one is this. There would be an ongoing battle with Satan, God said that Eve's offspring would have his heel struck by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. And this is a reference to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would one day crush the head of our adversary, the devil. And part of the reason you can say that Jesus said it is finished on the cross is because the moment that he atoned for our sins, the moment that death came upon him, he knew at that very moment that he was crushing the head of the adversary. And that age-old battle with the devil was done and he was victorious. 
And I love how God, even in the midst of this pronouncement of what so many call the curse, I call the consequences of sin, right in the middle of that, God is like he can't help himself. He gives us this hope. He says, I have a plan of restoration, a plan of redemption. And right away in Genesis 3, he begins to unveil that, to make that known to us. He is risen, you say. Very good. Second consequence is this. Pain would now be part of the human experience. We're told that Eve would deliver her children in pain. And ever since that point, women have delivered children and pain has been associated with it. And there's been pain of relationship, pain physically, pain relationally, which brings us right to this next consequence. Relationships are now messed up, God said. And the wife would desire her husband. And that word desire means in her sinful condition, she would try to manipulate and control her husband. And he, in his sinful condition, would treat her harshly and rule over her without love. And life would also involve painful toil. Life was meant to be this beautiful, harmonious relationship with nature and with God and with one another in relationship, now the ground is cursed and it would produce thorns and thistles. When we lived in our acreage here in the 1990s, when we were here in the 1990s in this area, we lived out uh, east of town about 10 miles. I used to jokingly say to my kids all the time when it came to Canadian thistles, this is part of God's curse, man. And I could not kill those things. I would spray them, I would burn them, I would pull them, but they came back over and over again. I have something to show you. <laughs> Vicky and I love to go for walks. And frequently when we're walking, we'll go all the way and make our way to the nature park from our house over there yeah, that's a great distance from there. And we're walking along the nature trail by the soccer fields and you'll see these weeds like this. They look like a tree. They're absolutely huge. And I always am reminded whenever I see one of these gigantic weeds like this of God's pronouncement that the ground will now produce thorns and thistles and, and it's cursed because of sin. And I encourage you sometime when you're walking with your children to maybe jokingly just say to them, see that big Canadian thistle? See that big weed over there? That's a reminder that because of sin, the ground is cursed. There's a fifth consequence here to sin that I want to cover with you really quickly. And this is the idea that death now has entered into the human experience. From dust we've come to dust we'll return. And we see the reality of this all the time, at a, at, a, at a graveside service frequently, as a closing moment to that service, uh, the ones who are grieving the loss of the loved one will walk up to the coffin that's by the, the hole in the ground that's going to be lowered into the ground, and they'll just dump some dirt on top of that coffin. And what they're really saying is, by this act, is from dust We've come, the dust will return. And it's kind of a sobering remembering of the consequences of sin articulated to us in Genesis chapter 
3. And we won't really know the why to the phrase it is finished unless we know the problem is sin and the natural outcome of sin is all these consequences that I just listed for you. But praise be to God, even in the pronouncement of these consequences, he came through with a hope kind of note. He, he, he said the offspring of Eve would crush the head of our adversary. God had a plan. He was in the know. He knew that mankind, that humankind was going to fall. And he had a plan since the foundation of the world to address that. Years ago, when I first moved back to Brookings, about 10 years ago now already, I got some discs from Rick Whiff on the show that was really popular at that time called Lost. And I kind of binge watched those shows. And as I got near the end of the show, I begin to realize the writers don't know what they're doing here. They're kind of making this thing up as they go along. It's not all coming together. And it began to really bother me. And I concluded by the time the show concluded that the, uh, the, the writers were just kind of making it up as they were going along. Now, some people love that show. So if you love that show, that's not what I'm debating today. But for me, I begin to think they don't really know what they're doing. But here's a whole perspective for us to grab a hold of this Easter season. Before the creation of the world, God had a plan of restoration. He was not making it up as he was going along. Nothing caught him off guard. 1 Peter 1.20 tells us that Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last time for our sakes. God had a plan of redemption, and the plan was Jesus. And if you don't understand the Bible as a continuous story of God's plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, you're not going to understand to the fullness the meaning of the phrase on the cross, it is finished. So get this. Take this moment to just reflect with me. So when a COVID-19 comes raging upon our world, it's not catching God off guard. He's not unaware. He knows what's going on. And we have to hope in him and trust in him during this time that just is so full of anxiety and unrest. we got to trust that God is in control and that he's working all things uh, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And perhaps he's allowing us to be shaken a little bit and allowing people who uh, formerly were hard to him and non-receptive to him to be shaken a little bit, for hard hearts to be softened and stop the ears to be opened up to hear the good news that Jesus saves. And who knows what will be the outcome of this thing ultimately. And I'm not trying to minimize the pain that anybody's going through right now and the hard things that they're facing, especially the ones who are, are grieving the loss of loved ones and the, the ones who are suffering from this so greatly. But in all of this, we have to stay fast in our conviction that God is not unaware and he's not caught off a guard. I love the Bible from this fact that it is one story of redemption from the get-go to the end. And I love the Old Testament because it paints these beautiful visual pictures and has these very cool experiences that people would go through that really foreshadowed uh, what would be uh, 
ultimately completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, 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 I don't know how you learn, but I know how I learn. I learn by experiences. I learn by seeing. I love being at our lake place up there north of Brainerd in Minnesota late in the evening in the summer when the sun is setting and it's glowing red and it kind of comes just over the top of the trees and it glimmers out the, out the water and it's all red. It's just beautiful. It just captivates my soul. And the thing would be just perfect if you weren't being eaten alive by mosquitoes at that very moment when you're watching it. But I tell you what, it is one of the most serene pictures and it just brings to me this calmness of spirit. I love sitting out in my backyard in the evening when it's cooling off, sitting on our deck and just listening to the wind. The wind blow through the pine trees that are by our house and that are across uh, Western Avenue from us. And one thing you can count on South Dakota is there's always a wind. And so you can always go out there and you can just kind of listen to that. And it's just very uh, calming for us. Well, the Old Testament is that kind of an imagery painting, kind of a experience-oriented revelation to us. And when we begin to understand some of the things that, that were being told there and pictured there in the Old Testament uh, and that were completed in Jesus Christ, we understand much more why his last words were, it is finished. And so let me give you this point and then I'm going to expand on it a little bit. The Old Testament masterfully painted pictures of the redemptive plan of God. Ancient Eastern culture was a culture that learned by experience, by touching and tasting and smelling and often had lots of visuals associated uh, with the culture that they were really, really uh, a culture that was into storytelling and, and, and into experiencing. And anymore, we're realizing even in our Western culture that's more about logic and more about hearing and lectures that people learn best by visuals and by experiences. Years ago here at Grace Point, uh, I tried to bring in a, a, a computer program called Monvi that was helpful for doing personalized discipling. And a lot of people at the time really didn't like that here. It was one of those things I thought, well, we can try this, and it just didn't work out that well. I think it was about eight years before it's time, to be honest with you. Now look at us. We're all online. We've got our smartphones. We've got our computers. And maybe now would be the time to actually have done something like that. But at any rate, that's not what I'm trying to get at. As part of this Monvi experiment, I asked you to take surveys because uh, we wanted to see what your learning styles were. And, and Mombi provided some of the tools to be able to take surveys. And so hundreds of people at Grace Point at that time took the survey, how do I learn best? And I was kind of shocked to learn that. Over 50% of the people said, I learn best by visuals, by seeing something. And then the second learning style that was dominant was this kinesthetic learning style. I learned best by touching and feeling and, you know, experiencing. And then a distant third was I learned best by hearing, by lectures. Only 15% of the people who took the survey said I learned best by, by just sitting down and listening. And that was very illuminating to me. And since that point, we here at Grace Point have tried to engage you visually and experientially because I realized that most of you learn best that way. And that, my friends, is how ancient culture tended to experience things and remember things and learn things. And so what I want to do right now is return to an, an Old Testament ritual 
that's just so rich in illuminating why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. We're going to return to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, to the annual ritual that was given to the Israelites in chapter 16 that they're to experience each year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And I'm going to just focus very specifically on one aspect of that ritual. And that was the selecting of two goats. And then one goat by lot was selected to be the sacrificial goat. And one goat by lot was selected to be the scapegoat. So, they would cast lots, and one goat was selected to be sacrificed. And that goat was sacrificed. And then the high priest would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it on the altar, signifying that by this blood, by the shedding of blood, your sins are atoned for. And of course, we can easily see how that foreshadowed what would happen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would come and he would shed his blood and sacrifice himself for our sins and he would cleanse us once for all. But understand this, from the point of that implementation of that day of atonement back in Leviticus 16, every year, every year there was this day of atonement, every year for generations and generations and generations there would be the sacrifice of this goat and the sprinkling of this blood, this annual reminder that the sins that people were committing were only atoned for by the shedding of blood. This people would experience this over and over and over again. And then we need to talk on the second goat. That's the scapegoat. This doesn't get talked about a whole bunch. But man, is it significant to understanding why Jesus said it is finished. I really wanted to have a goat and have a live goat here. And I, I really wanted to do this live in front of, uh, of the church. And of course, who would have thought when I was planning this stuff two, three months ago that here we would be online today and we'd be facing the times we're facing. I just had no idea that this would happen. My things change quickly. So today I'm going to ask you to imagine a little bit with me. We're going to have a scapegoat picture go on the screen for you so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. But on the specific day of atonement, the high priest would stand only in his linens, his his holy underwear, so to speak. Now, whenever you hear about uh, a priest being in just their linens, their holy underwear, it's, it's, it's a posture of humility. It's a posture of transparency. It's a posture of confession. David, the great, uh, you know, patriarch from the Old Testament, when he was dancing and leading uh, the Ark of the Covenant back uh, to Jerusalem, uh, he danced in front of that thing in his what? His underwear. It was, it, was a, it was a posture of contrition, a posture of just submission to the Lord. So the, the priest is standing in his linens, puts both hands on the scapegoat's head, and he confesses all the sins of the people on that scapegoat. Laying all those things on that scapegoat. Confessing before God and having this holy moment just of honesty and transparency. And then that goat would be led to a remote place and usually be led by uh, the use of a red cord of some sort. Led to a, a solitary place indicating that the sins of the people have been 
carried away and they were gone uh, as, and out, out of sight. And there's some tradition surrounding this goat that says they would use this red cord symbolizing that by the blood of the sacrifice coat, uh, goat, excuse me, that, uh, the, that the judgment and punishment of God was then carried away. So the scapegoat gave a visual to the people that their sins had been carried away. And it's just such a rich ritual. And that people, now you got to understand this, this whole observation of the Day of Atonement was actually 10 days long. And this scapegoat thing took place as a kind of a culmination uh, to that whole observance, that whole ritual. And, and the people were so relieved that their sins had been carried away. They would shout, take it away, take the goat away. And they'd get super excited that the goat was gone because their sins were gone. But Remember, year after year after year after year after year, they had to go through this same process. Now go to Jesus and the cross. This Old Testament day of atonement was really all about him. It had no power in and of itself. The power lied in that it pointed to one day Jesus would come, the Son of God, and become the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, carrying them away. And as Jesus was crucified, you've got to just see how this all ties together. So Jesus is crucified. They jam on his head this crown of thorns, and it causes a profuse bleeding. And guess what? It ringed him in red. And if you're astute, and if you're aware of this Old Testament tradition of, you know, the, the, the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat, you would go, oh, man, he's got the red ring. It's going on here. And then we know that he carried away God's judgment and he carried away and he, and he took upon himself God's punishment. And only this time it wasn't symbolic. It was truly happening. The day of atonement, the ultimate day of atonement was upon the people at that moment. And in John chapter 19, verse 15, Pontius Pilate presented a beaten up Jesus to the people and said, here's your king. To which those present replied, do you remember what they replied? Take him away, take him away. Crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus was taken away outside the camp to a remote place with a red ring around his head and neck to the shouting of people, take him away. This is nothing more than the actual day of atonement. Everything foreshadowed in the Old Testament that was given to us as a, as a shadow of what's to come was now seen in full color and full revelation in Jesus Christ. And as John said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The writer of Hebrews understood this link between the Day of Atonement and Jesus really well. Listen to what is said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for the sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this, of course, is referring to rituals like the Day of Atonement. Year after year after year, they would offer these goats and sacrifice these goats, but they could never really take away sins. The power of the Day of Atonement in the ancient Israelite experience lie in that it pointed to what would be completed in Jesus Christ. 
And the Hebrew writer put that linkage together that, that all those former things were a picture, a shadow of what's now seen fully revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished then by his death and by his resurrection. This is further explained in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 12, which tell us this, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that would be Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And you know what? The light bulb's supposed to come on here. The light bulb's supposed to come on as we read this and as we understand what was taking place in the Day of Atonement. We're supposed to go, oh, Jesus is the once for all final sacrifice, no other sacrifice is now needed. And we're all supposed, to, also supposed to realize he carries my sins away from me as far as the east is from the west. And we're just supposed to rejoice. It's done. It's finished. These annual observances are no longer needed. They've been completed perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. You say what? As you're sitting at home listening to this, I would encourage you to say, the goat has left the house. And to say, yes, the goat has left the house. In the ancient observance of the Day of Atonement, when that goat would leave and carry away the sins, the people would go, yes, my sins are gone. And they would get all full of joy and they would get excited. And we too, in, the, in, in a greater understanding of what it means to say, the goat has left the house. Hallelujah. I don't know if you're watching a lot of old sports stuff right now. I'm watching a little bit of that on ESPN. That's all they have to show us right now. And they keep talking about Tom Brady. Um, and they call him the GOAT. And when they use that word GOAT, they, they mean the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. And perhaps as a football player, he is the greatest of all time. I don't know. Uh, but I want to tell you this today. The greatest of all time. Is Jesus Christ. He's the once for all sacrifice that has carried our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. So why is it finished? Listen to this. It is finished because Jesus became the once for all time sacrifice that has carried away the sins of those who put their faith in him. So as Jesus uttered his last breath as he hung on that cross, it makes so much sense it just absolutely makes 100% sense that he would say, it is finished. Because all of the Bible is a story of redemption. It's all been pointing to that moment when Christ would become the once for all sacrifice for our sins and carry them away. He, has, he is the final goat, so to speak. Both sacrificially and scapegoat-wise. And he has finished the redemption story of God, and he puts the final brush strokes on the picture that God's been painting all the way up to that point. Everything's been pointing to this moment when Jesus died on the cross, and he has finished, so to speak, the redemptive plan of God. He has risen... You say, 